Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex, and I'm an MD at Harvard MBA, finishing up a master's at Stanford and a computer science PhD at Oxford. And I'm really interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. My name is Ashad, and I'm an MD at Harvard MBA, interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dan Grant. Dan is the head of medical education at MediChecks, the UK's leading online blood testing company. He is also the founder of The Stealth Doctor, which is a multi-channel platform that aims to educate the public about daily life ways and habits to get healthier. Dan is also the CEO of UK Wallball, which is the governing body for the sport of wallball in the United Kingdom. He also holds an MD from University College London. Dan, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Yeah, Shad, Alex, pleasure to be here. Absolutely, Dan. As we were digging through some of your previous work and all the really eclectic stuff that you've done, we got more and more excited to chat. There's just really a lot to talk about. But let's start from the very, very beginning. You know, looking at your various areas of expertise, we can't help but be incredibly impressed and, and sort of inspired that, that you've managed, even with a medical education and practice, to still follow your passions outside of clinical medicine and, and really, really go for it. So to put things into perspective for our audience members, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about your background, your childhood years, and why you decided to go into medicine in the first place? And then why did you decide to venture off the beaten path? Yeah. Okay. I'll try and give it to you in a nutshell. Um, basically, in the UK, I... I did my A-levels, which is like, you know, the end of high school. And I did the, the three subjects which go best together, which was biology, Latin and design and technology. So <laughs> like it, I was all over the place. Basically, I enjoyed a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, for my A-level design and technology, I made a bed, you know, and then I was doing Latin and biology or whatever. But then when I went to university, I went to UCL in London and I made the, the logical choice of doing Egyptology as my undergraduate because, I don't know, I thought it was going to be cool. I thought it was going to be like uh, Indiana Jones, Stargate or something wicked. Um, but yeah, it turns out it's actually pretty boring. <laughs> there was a bit of archaeology and it, you know, it would have been great if they had said, you know, these are the pyramids uh, and let's talk about this and the mummies or whatever. But they didn't. They just spoke about like hole in the ground in the middle of nowhere from the 20th dynasty or whatever it was really dull so I wanted to switch degrees and uh, UCL let you switch internally um, UCL's University College London by the way and um, there was a degree that I found called human sciences and this degree basically let you do whatever you wanted to do as long as it relates to humans. So year one, they give you like, you have to do some certain things. But year two and three, you literally just choose whatever you want, as long as it relates to humans, which is pretty much anything. So, you know, some people just chose physiology modules and, you know, they probably just should have done a physiology degree. I, based on my background, just chose things which had cool names and sounded interesting. So I did like, you know, advanced immunology. I did the eye and the brain. Um, I did like evolutionary anatomy. I did zoo archaeology. I did the archaeology I would have done had I carried on doing archaeology. Um, and then I also saw this one called space medicine and extreme environment physiology. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool. Um, so I did that. 
And uh, it was super hard because for me, I had to get myself up to like, you know, third year physiology degree level without having done the whole background. It's just eavesdropping, basically. But it was really good fun. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I got my degree in human sciences. So what you need to do is park that because I need to tell you something else I was doing at university, um, which was I started making movies. Um, and I had made a few little handheld, fun, uh, mockumentary kind of things. And then one summer, I was in the pub with a couple of friends, and we had been watching the Evil Dead trilogy. And over a few beers, we thought, why don't we make a movie next year? And it, we kind of laughed about it. And I thought, yeah, you know what, let's do it. And it was going to be like another handheld, you know, crappy little, like, you know, try and make it a bit better than the other stuff. But, you know, I went away, I wrote a script, and over the years, suddenly it became a professional production. So I had friends who were studying at film school who said, oh, we have this amazing camera equipment that no one's using over the summer, we can borrow it. My university had like a studio that no one was using over the summer, so we could use it. Uh, 28 days later, just finished filming and all their prosthetics, they let us use it. So over the course of like the year, this thing turned into a proper professional film. And it was one of the best summers of my life, like filming for six weeks and then you know, editing it for a long time after that. But it was great. And that movie was called Dark Knight. I made that before Chris Nolan made his Dark Knight. And I spoke to him about that. That's the story for another time. Um, and uh, yeah, it was great. And it was just like this horror movie that was really good fun, really good time with friends. Uh, and it was a great time. So anyway, I finished my degree. And I came out of UCL, and obviously, with a bit of a creative and science background, I ended up in advertising very briefly. But it wasn't super fun. I was doing medical copywriting. But while I was there, the offers started coming in. So my film has started to go around circuits. And um, I mean, this was like the days before the big digital revolution. We were on the cusp of it. So I remember being in one festival with my movie that cost, it cost about £6,000 to make, like $10,000. Um, the virtual budget of it was about half a million based on all the stuff we blagged, borrowed and stole. Um, but, uh, you know, in one festival, I was up against Final Destination 4 or something, which cost like 25 million. So we were never going to win that. But I'd been around the circuit and then I, I started to get job offers to come in as a producer. So I started going into producing like the top end of the micro budget film industry, which is about two million dollars um, and, and little things on a few blockbusters. So things like Harry Potter and, and stuff like that. And it was like, you know, it was fun when it started, but then I, I got into producing a lot. Uh, and producing is just business. It's not creative. Um, and I was kind of good at it, but I didn't really enjoy it. And then I worked on one film for a whole year, which I think is still on Amazon Prime, um, called Baseline, uh, which is about a nightclub, not about tennis. And... Um, yeah, they, they really screwed me over. They had like an executive producer that came on halfway through that really screwed me over and um, made me feel pretty bad. And I think, you know, if this had happened nowadays, I'd be far more resilient and I would bounce back a lot easier. But back then I was still young. I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then I kind of, I remember being on the train into town with my mum for my parents' anniversary. And she said, hey, you always liked science, didn't you? Why don't you try doing medicine or something like that? And I said, I mean, I think she always wanted to have a son who was a doctor. But, you know, I said, that's a stupid idea. Like, why would I do that? I'm just in the film industry, for God's sake. But then I kind of thought about it. And then I had a friend who was like an emergency doctor. And I got like a day of work experience. And then I saw the applications for medicine were closing. So I threw together an application, 
applied to five unis, got rejected for most of them. But then I went to UCL and I had an interview and they basically said, where did you do undergrad? I said, UCL. They said, get in here. So that was it. I was there back into UCL doing medicine. And um, I, I really enjoyed the degree because it's a bit like human sciences. You know, you're doing a bit of everything and especially as medicine moves on and on. You know, I think it used to be just anatomy and physiology, but now it's so much of everything that it's really interesting. And I loved it um, until I qualified. And when I qualified, uh, I kind of quickly found that A, my personality wasn't really matching with some of the specialties I thought I'd really like. You know, I was actually got a really good job rotating through like anaesthetics, emergency medicine, uh, general practice, tropical disease and stuff like that. It was really good. It was a really good taster. And some of those jobs I would quite like to do, but I'm not willing to go through the rubbish to get there because I do other things with my life. And then other ones just didn't seem as fun as they were. And, you know, there's I think I have the same problem I had with producing. I quickly realized there was no creativity in clinical like NHS medicine. And it was really frustrating. Um, so that's when I kind of made a decision after working for a few years with the NHS. And obviously I still do a bit of work with the NHS. I still do emergency medicine um, to kind of keep, keep my registration and stay valid. You do a bit of clinical stuff every year. But I've kind of realized that that medical degree, it opens up a ton of doors. And, you know, I've got a background in arts and in um, film and media and then my other background, which I haven't really spoken about, but we can talk about later, is sport, which is, you know, it's kind of half my life at the moment. And I run a national governing body that's about to become a charity. Um, and, you know, basically putting it all together, um, I formed this this persona for myself that I call the stealth doctor. I do stealth health. So it's all it's preventative medicine. And I'm particularly interested in things that keep you healthy without you knowing it. Um, and that's something I learned from space medicine way back when. And it's worth saying that, you know, I kept in touch with space medicine the whole way through. And, you know, my mentor that got me into, you know, helped me in my interview for UCL. Uh, he's a guy called Kevin Fong, who's like the space doctor from the UK. Uh, and then I started helping him do the degree that I did. Uh, and then I lectured and then I went to NASA for like a not quite an elective, but for a space course before I started. And I've kind of stuck with it. So all that extreme environment medicine stuff, um, I stick with that. And so if you put in extreme medicine, uh, prevention, and my other job that I do with biomarker stuff in med tech at the moment, and you do sport, and you have the interest in arts and things like that, that I do, it all fits really nicely into prevention. And that's kind of where I've molded my career. Yeah, Dan. Uh, wow. Alex and I were just texting about how inspiring this is. I think most of our guests that we've had, even those that have ventured off the beaten path, so to speak, you know, started with medicine, started with a relatively traditional career path. You know, maybe their parents were doctors. You know, they knew when they were five that medicine was their calling. And, you know, but you were, you know, so to speak, like always off the beaten path and you did other, other stuff before falling into medicine, which, which I find is very, very interesting. And probably you bring a very different perspective than, than most of our guests do. And what I love is you, you obviously did stuff that you found were interesting and were passionate about and you just did it. I think you mentioned that you chose stuff based on at least your courses based on what sounded cool and sounded interesting. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And as someone who started off college as a philosophy major, I sort of tried to do that. I, I realized very soon that I was no good at it and I was a lot better in the, in the sciences. So I switched relatively quickly. 
You mentioned at the end there uh, the, the stealth doctor. It's something that I really found interesting when digging into your story. I think it reminded me of a conversation we had recently with uh, Shiv Gaglani, who's the CEO of Osmosis. And he talked about founding what's called a patient promise with a colleague after coming across a, a Hopkins study about the increase in overweight and obese doctors. And he mentioned that one of his missions was to better educate people and especially healthcare workers about the the value of taking care of themselves and practicing sort of better, healthier lifestyles. And, you know, the motherly or the parental version of that is my mom would always tell me, you know, you can't take care of others if you don't take care of yourself. And of course she was right. I didn't listen to her very often because it was hard. And I know that I struggled a lot with work-life balance. And so healthy lifestyle was one of the first things to go. And I'm sure our audience members, most of whom are pre-meds, medical students, residents, fellows, are struggling with the same thing. So with the Stealth Doctor, as you mentioned, you aim to educate and enlighten everyone about how we can all get healthier through all the things you, you don't even know are related to your health. So can you talk to us a little bit about how the idea of Stealth Doctor came about and, and what tips can you provide to our audience members? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, super interesting um, what your other guests said, and I, I totally buy into it. Um, but my, my thinking with, with Stealth Health was that I think you can get, you can get healthy actively or passively. And, uh, you know, the active stuff is obvious. We tell people, you know, you need to do exercise. You need to eat a good diet. And some people will do that, but we know that a lot of people won't do that and it's hard to do. But if you manipulate people's surrounding and their environment so that they have no choice and, crucially, they don't know about it, um, then they're getting healthy kind of without knowing about it, which is super interesting. And I got into this because, well, the first thing that really sparked me was space medicine. So I was really interested to learn about how, you know, circadian rhythms are totally disrupted as you're orbiting the earth, you know, we have a 24 hour cycle here. It's a 90 minute cycle when you're orbiting on the international space station. So, you know, their circadian rhythms, their sleep cycle is all over the place. So those guys were the first ones to think about circadian lighting and, you know, having these lights, which, you know, start off with the sun rising and then it goes blue and then it goes yellow and red over a 24 hour cycle to try and, you know, maintain that circadian cycle. So you have good normal human homeostasis and I found that really interesting when I learned about it and I was like yeah you know what that's super interesting and then I think there was an episode so when I was when I was in my first year as a doctor I was working on a on a surgical ward uh, in the gastro department and they did this thing which drove me nuts like they they turn off the lights and they they shut the blinds and they make it almost pitch black on the ward between like 1 p.m and 2.30. And I was, I was like, what are you doing? And I did that because for me, as someone who's working in there, I hated it because it, it felt rubbish. But then I was like, but surely this is not good for the patients either. So I kind of, I looked into it and I said, why are we doing this? And they said, well, it's because the patients, they wanted it because, you know, they, they say they need it. And I was like, why do they need it? They said they're not sleeping at night. And I, why aren't they sleeping at night? Because you guys are too noisy and you're waking them up with like your bleeps and whatever. So there's a simple fix there. But I said, like, surely this circadian disruption is really bad. And they said, well, whatever, we're doing it. So me being me, I kind of went away and I emailed as many experts in sleep cycles and circadian rhythms as I could find. So like Queen Square in London, I remember emailing someone in Stanford. I Like anyone who was an expert in this, I got in touch with them. And I got like seven emails back 
from people saying, this is really bad. This is terrible. And I even got linked to an article where they'd uh, done like bowel surgery on rats uh, and then uh, anastomosed them back together and then disrupted the sleep cycle of the rats. And the rats who had their rhythm totally disrupted, their bowels exploded. And I was like, we are literally doing exactly the same thing to humans on the ward here. So what is going on? And I got all my research and I, and I put it all together. And I said, like, we need to turn on the lights during the day. Um, and I showed it to my boss and she said, hmm, that's really interesting. But yeah, I mean, maybe you can do this like in 10 years time when you're a consultant, you can make some changes. But at the moment, you know, you just need to carry on doing your job. And I was like, screw this. I'm out. <laughs> so that was another thing when I was like, OK, so actively trying to make these changes and trying to push it via the regular ways are not happening. And the, the healthcare system I'm working in isn't doing it. Um, concurrently, you know, I'm working in sport, so we're getting people active and you're doing stuff. But, you know, by the time this podcast airs, we will have launched a, a new court in London, you know, the Guardian newspaper were there today. So you can look back like two months or whenever this thing comes out um, and you can read. And, you know, if you make the area appealing and nice, people use it. And I kind of got into that because I was reading a bunch of architecture and engineering work and, you know, it's about building design. And, you know, if you put like a really, really nice staircase in the middle of your foyer, then people walk up it and you put the lifts around the back and you make the lifts look horrible. And then people don't use the lifts. They all use the stairs. And I was thinking, well, we can do this in the urban environment as well. And this isn't really new thinking like a lot of people do it. But you make an area look really beautiful and really nice. And it's got places to eat. It's got places to chill out and it's got whatever. And it's got interactive bits of the environment. Then you know, humans, we're animals, we just want to go and explore really fun, nice places. So um, that's one of the other things I'm doing. And then because I do all of this, I, I'm going, kind of going full circle back into movies, like I, I really enjoy education, I enjoy broadcast stuff. Um, and, you know, I wanted to meet interesting people. So I thought I would set up my little persona called the Stealth Doctor or Stealth Health on YouTube. Um, and it was a, with a view to kind of educating some people, but really it was a, it's more like a hobby. Like I'm, I'm really interested to learn um, cool things and meet interesting people. And the video I'm working on at the moment is super interesting. Um, and it's really opened my eyes to a whole, a whole nother sector that I didn't really know about. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that's a roundabout way to answer your question. No, no, it very much did, Dan. And, and there's a lot there to, to really reflect on. I think the first thing I, I picked up on was this notion of active versus passive, you know, health and, and conceptually very enlightening because, you know, I think what you're trying to do and what your colleagues are trying to do is essentially lower the, to borrow a science term, to, to lower the activation energy for people to get healthy. And, and because some people just won't make the effort to do so, I know I didn't. Not necessarily because I couldn't. There's always time to get healthy because it's incredibly important. It's just you misprioritize things when you're in the moment and you're going through residency and you're working 100 hours a week that becomes sort of your life. And and so making it easier for people to get healthy is, is always just going to be a, a good thing. I also thought your sleep story was very instructive about a problem I've historically had with just the profession. And, and I love the profession of clinical medicine, but you know, rather than solving sort of the underlying problem of people not sleeping at night, we're just treating the secondary, you know, manifestation of the problem, which in this case is the fact that, you know, people are sleepy during the day and you know, we can sort of talk about that for a long time, but it's, it's sort of a generalizable problem that I've noticed a lot in clinical medicine. And 
The other thing that you pointed out, which is probably the most frustrating thing with a lot of docs who are trying to make disruptive change within the healthcare ecosystem is this notion of, oh, you got to wait your turn, right? You know, that's cool that you figure this out and, and that this is better for patients. But, you know, when you're an attending or when you're a consultant, you know, you can make those changes. Right now, you just got to do what you're told. It's It can be very frustrating at, at times, but I'm glad to know that this is something that uh, all of us have dealt with at one point or another. And I got to say, Shad, it's, it's bull. Like that, and and that, I think that would be my advice to a, a bunch of people who might be listening, especially if they're like coming in for medical students. You know, it's especially bad in the UK because, you know, we got the NHS, which is an amazing organization. And for patients, it's fantastic. But it's a giant bureaucracy, right? So it's got the three main bureaucratic things of, you know, sloth-like inertia, uh, this obsession with rank over merit, and a matching obsession with conformism. And it's super frustrating. And I, you know, your medical degree, like I said, can get you into a lot of places. And I remember when I first stepped out and moved into the private sector, um, and I started working for a company called Medichex, and I, I still work for them. But, you know, I they asked me to write a booklet um, when I started, and I wrote it. And then like a week later, they'd published like a thousand copies and were distributing it. And I was like, what? If I was on the NHS, this would take a year. So, you know, uh, as soon as you step out the system, you know, I think every profession needs a doctor. And also there will always be doctor jobs. Like a lot of medics are terrified. I don't know if you've come across this, like, you know, they think if they step out, it's all going to fall apart and they're never going to come back and they're going to fall off, whatever. Like if you're in the UK, there are 50% not enough doctors in the UK. So there will always be a job for you. They will always welcome you back. Um, and lots of other countries have the same thing. So yeah, pursuing avenues and doing follow. I mean, my, my mantra has always been, you know, if someone, if someone offers me something to do, like I'm quite adventurous, you know, I want to try everything. And like I said, if it sounds cool, I'm going to give it a go. I know not everyone has that personality, but it's a totally safe thing to do. And I think people get very scared, but actually, you know, it's safe, especially if you do something for like a year. I mean, come on, you can always go back and you can try it out and your life is going to be so much richer. Yeah, no, that's such an important point, Dan. I think I'm thinking back to something that Iman Abuzaid said, who was a guest on our podcast. She's the CEO of Incredible Health. And this notion of riskiness, you know, doctors in general, at least in the U.S., but I imagine maybe in the U.K. as well, are generally a risk-averse bunch. And and that's we're a very, you know, intelligent, hardworking group of people, but some of the creativity kind of gets sapped out of us when we go through the, the medical school residency fellowship and, and whatnot. And we also just become very risk-averse. And I think the the general thought process of docs is that, oh, if you step off the beaten path, it's going to be very, very risky. And you're just, you know, like you, you have no structure, you're going to fail. But in an advanced economy and an advanced ecosystem like the US and the UK, there's so many jobs, there's access, for example, if you're a physician who wants to become an entrepreneur, there's access to capital, there's access to networks, there's a whole ecosystem that makes it somewhat less risky. I understand maybe if another part of the world where there aren't these exciting opportunities, where it truly would be very difficult to go off the beaten path in a very robust way, it's very challenging. But I think in Europe and in North America, I think that excuse just doesn't fly anymore, if that's really what you want to do. There's a lot more to talk about, Dan, and, and so I think wanted to turn our attention to some of the really cool space medicine work that you've done. In 2017, the, the Royal College of Anesthesia celebrated its 25th anniversary, and 
It was also the 60th anniversary of the Russian launch of Sputnik 1 and the 50th anniversary of the launch of Ariel 3, which was the first UK-designed and constructed artificial satellite. And on that day, a review published in the British Journal of Anesthesia explored the important role of space medicine as a really fundamental area to the human exploration of space. And as the Aerospace Development Director at the Center for Altitude Space and Extreme Environment Medicine, Case Medicine, which consists of a group of clinicians and scientists with specialists interested in in training in medicine and physiology of extreme environments. I'd love if if you can talk a little bit about how your interest in space medicine came about and what are the main, I'm just curious, what are the main sort of medical physiological issues that, you know, astronauts face in space and what sort of mitigation and treatment strategies do they use? Yeah, cool. Um, Yeah, cool question. Now you're on my home soil. Uh, yeah, space medicine. I mean, it's cool, right? It sounds cool. It's, it sounds cooler than a lot of other disciplines in medicine. And it, and it is, um, because we're in space and space is amazing. And like the engineering and technical feats that got us there, it still blows my mind. Like it's still amazing what we can do. And now the private companies are in it. I think the sector's really going to explode. So it's a good investment for the future. If you're thinking about where you might want to be looking, uh, as you kind of embark on your medical career. Um, I got into it, like I said, I, I, I met a guy called Kevin Fong um, when I did my undergrad and I kind of stuck with him and then he kind of helped me out on the course. But when I got to my elective, I said to him, you know, I want to do an elective to NASA. And uh, they said they don't do that. NASA don't do electives. Um, but so, you know, I did something else. I was into pre-hospital stuff. So I did something in Australia. But I did find there was this one course that NASA run with the uh, University of Texas medical branch called the Principles of Aviation and Space Medicine, or the PASM. And I applied to that. I got it. I got the scholarship for it as well, which is cool, Um, even though it's actually an exceedingly cheap course for an American course. So it's eminently affordable by anyone who wants to do it. But this thing, I tell you, it was a month um, in Houston um, at the university and at Johnson Space Center and the Neutral Buoyancy Lab and stuff like this, like unprecedented access to some of these places. And it was incredible. You know, first of all, I mean, you're getting all these lectures every day, it's quite busy, but you're also meeting all these astronauts. Um, and that's, that's incredible when you hear their stories. Like I say, you get access to things like the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, which is an incredible place to visit where they do their diving underwater to simulate spacewalks and things like that. Um, and crucially, you know, space medicine is a small sector and you meet your cohort. So I met the most amazing group of people, like about 30 other people from all over the world, like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Norway, Canada, the US and and uh, Colombia as well, actually, the people who are setting up their own space organizations there. And it was awesome. And these are your peers. These are the ones you're going forward with. And the other thing I've realized as I got into the space sector is, yes, I came into it from a medical point of view. But where I would say that a lot of medical disciplines are a hyper specialist, right? So you know, extreme environment medicine, my, my go-to is to say, you know, altitude medicine. I started with altitude stuff. I've, I've done research up the Alps and things like that. And I would say that the physiology becomes really, really micro. Like you're moving to like a PhD level of like, you need to understand what's going on in this phosphorylation pathway or something like that. And I find that a little bit boring. Uh, and cause I can't focus on things that are that narrow, you know, I probably wouldn't be great at a PhD, but space medicine is still really interdisciplinary. I, I think that there's a scene in Apollo 13 where, you know, they, they need to change the, the carbon dioxide scrubber or something. And they say, we have this and we need to make it fit, fit into this. And all we have is this. 
and those guys go ahead and do it. So actually, when you move into the space field, you realize that, I mean, it's not like that, but it is really interdisciplinary. So yes, I've started off with medicine, but I've since met people who are, you know, engineers and astrophysicists and even astronomers. And what is really nice about this is that everyone, like, everyone looks up, kind of metaphorically, but everyone is interested in the world and they're not like on their phone the whole time they're not looking down they're not miserable and you really have this appreciation for how insignificant your life is in the universe I mean you really know that you are you know you are there for you so you know that email that is pissing you off that is meaningless so suddenly what you realize is that actually life is short you know you're a small person in this universe you might as well just do stuff which makes you happy and do, like you don't have to get sucked into the rubbish, basically. So space medicine being really good for opening my mind to that kind of thing as well. And then on to your, to your other point in the question, you know, I've loved it because of the people I meet and what I'm learning, basically. And like I said, I'm becoming an expert generalist, as I guess someone like Elon Musk would put it, because, yeah, you need to start learning about engineering and astrophysics and whatever. And that's really cool. Um, but yeah, so space medicine, I can give you a very quick pressy to, to get a better one. Uh, I would say go to my YouTube stealth health because I made a whole huge video about space medicine for beginners, which I thought would be really fun. That's like, uh, I think my biggest video today, but definitely check that out. Uh, but yeah, basically when you go into space, you lose gravity and you are designed to live on earth with gravity. So things that go wrong, your orthostatic, tolerance goes all over the place because your fluid shift starts moving so the fluid all floats up to your face and away from your legs so astronauts look like they have these moon faces and and chicken legs and that changes you know the hydrodynamics of your body it changes the um the fluid pressures onto your kidneys into your heart potentially into your eyes as well um so there's some issues in all of those areas uh because of the fluid shift as well and because of the diet you're more prone to things like kidney stones um as i said there's like pressures in your eyes pressures in your heart um your bones and your muscles you know these are dynamic organs they're constantly turning over and you have this huge weight of gravity on you and when you're in space it goes so their muscles waste away and their bones waste away and the muscles form these weird hybrid fibers between fast and slow switch which we don't really have on earth and, you know, the, the solution for all of this is to come back to Earth, because then for the most part, you sort yourself out. Um, but, you know, we can't do that. So what, you know, the countermeasure, the, the ultimate gold standard countermeasure would be artificial gravity, which we can kind of do. But it's a it's a it's a bit of an engineering nightmare and an expensive one to do. But it, it could be done. But in the meantime, you know, you can take bisphosphonates to kind of bulk up your bones the NASA have designed these amazing exercise equipment. And I've, I used them when I went to NASA. And, you know, there's a treadmill which kind of pings you down with bungees. And it's the hardest treadmill I've ever been on. And then they have a weight machine. So you lift weight in space, which is really interesting because there is no weight in space. So actually, it's like um, they've designed like a vacuum system. So you suck a vacuum. And it feels exactly like doing a deadlift or a bench press. It's a really amazing bit of kit. So, you know, these guys are up there doing that all day long, uh, you know, a couple of hours every day, pretty much to try and offset things. And, you know, then you see the difference in the different nations as well. So America, the Americans are quite, there's more of a pharmaceutical, like shock horror, big surprise, 
Um, there's more, you know, pharmaceutical input there. And I think the astronauts want uh, drugs to sort the problems out. And then some of the Europeans are looking for other ways so they don't necessarily have to have the drugs. So you see all these like different countermeasures which are specific to the people. But yeah, going forward, it's, it's going to be really interesting because like I said, the private guys are taking over and, you know, we're going to start having space hotels, you know, space labs, all of this. And the, what's really interesting is at the moment, all our research, right, is done on really healthy people because astronauts are super healthy people. But when like proper space sector takes off big time, suddenly all the unhealthy people are going to go to space and like no research has been done on them. So that's going to be really interesting as we, you know, what happens if you're diabetic? What happens if you're pregnant? Like, you know, what happens if you're a kid or a really old person and you're up there for a while? It's really, really interesting. And I think there's even potential cures up there. Like if you have really horrible rheumatoid arthritis, for example, so any kind of load onto your joints is really painful, go to space. It's a cure. Like I'm pretty, I think in the future, people are going to just go up there and die up there. Uh, because they'll feel 100% better. And all those nasty things which happen to you, yeah, some of them aren't great when you're up there, but a lot of them, are they're not horrendous unless you're coming back to Earth. And when you come back to Earth, that's when it's going to hit you and it's really bad. But if you stay up there, you know, maybe that's a future for some people. I don't know. It's, it's going to be a very interesting couple of decades ahead of us. Wow, Dan. No, very, very interesting. I mean, as you were talking about your experiences with NASA It was just, like you said, it's just so cool. I feel like a a kid again to think about all of these different things. I was thinking about a resident here at MGH, just down the road from where I worked, Johnny Kim. He was a resident in actually emergency medicine, and he is one of NASA's newest astronauts. And his background is also very, very eclectic. I think he was a Navy SEAL before. And I think I read, you know, NASA had 18,000 applicants and he was like one of 12 people selected. And it just seems like people who are attracted to sports medicine are a very cool, eclectic bunch. And Chris Hatfield, of course, is my favorite astronaut just because he's Canadian. He also sings very well and does a very mean and great David Bowie cover. But this was a really, really great conversation so far, Dan. I know Alex had a couple of questions, so I'll pass it on to him. Awesome. Thanks, Chad and Dan. It's been a great conversation so far and and a very interesting one. I wanted to reflect on a couple of the points that you've mentioned. I think the first one is, is that it's important to think differently when we think about space. You know, there's this story that floats around the internet. I think it's a myth rather than a reality. That story that, you know, NASA spent millions of dollars developing like this complicated pen for to be used in space because basically there is no gravity and you had like the Soviets using basically a pencil, (laughs) but essentially it just speaks to the point that like it requires a complete paradigm shift when we think about that environment to to the simple points that, for example, we cannot use the pens that we use on earth on space. I think I've checked the story. It's probably a myth rather than a reality. (laughs) I would love to kind of get your perspective if that's not the case. But essentially, that's one element that I wanted to reflect on. And I think the other one is around the point that you've mentioned that every career or every industry needs a doctor. And this is something that we've discussed multiple times with guests before. And Chad and I are trying to push this idea of medicine becoming more of a platform degree similar to an MBA, similar to a PharmD, where it gives you a very robust and thorough understanding of human physiology, different disease and pathology, 
and different aspects of healthcare systems and really prepares you to go on different trajectories. I imagine still the majority of graduates would go towards careers in clinical medicine, but I think just opening up that funnel to other career paths would be quite important. That's awesome. I think just in the interest of time, I think it's super interesting conversation and I, I can go for hours here, but I wanted to ask a question about wall ball. So you've launched the sport of a one wall handball or wall ball in the UK and you run its national governing body as well as much of the sport around the world. Can you explain why the sport specifically, like what drew you to it in the first place? And how do you find the time to balance your work on the sport with your many other roles on top of practicing medicine? And I would love maybe a couple of thoughts from you and and pieces of advice for young medical doctors and medical students who are interested in perhaps creative or sports interests beyond clinical medicine, but who are maybe hesitant to explore those interests out of fear or maybe risk aversion. Would love your thoughts on that as well. Over to you, Dan. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Alex. I think, um, yeah, so the sport of handball. So it depends who I'm talking to in the world. Um, I presume most of your listeners are American, so you'll know the sports handball. Like especially if you're from New York or the West Coast, uh, you'll have seen these these giant concrete walls, and you're smacking a ball against it with your hands. Um, if you go to some places in Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, and you start talking about handball, they'll think you're talking about throwing a football into a goal. It's a totally different sport, but it's got the same name. Now, uh, one wall handball is um, slowly pushing itself towards the Olympics. And the International Olympic Committee a few years ago said, hey, you can't call your sport handball because we already have this sport called team handball, uh, which is in the Olympics. So the decision has been made to change the name of the sport to wall ball, um, which is a bit of a mouthful. But I tell you, when the kids start saying it, it just sounds totally normal. But when you grow up playing handball, it's a bit of a weird, it's a weird jump. So yeah, if I say wall ball, uh, I mean one wall handball. If I say one wall handball, I mean wall ball. Depends what you're listening in the world. Um, But yeah, I mean... I would say every country hits balls against walls uh, with your hand. It's one of the basic things that humans do. And they have their different names for it. So in America, you have handball. In Ireland, you have Gaelic handball. In Spain, you have pelota. In the UK, you have fives. You have all these different things. But the sport of one wall, um, like you see in New York City, there's two and a half thousand courts, right? And they are just, I think the Irish immigrants set it up because they couldn't build their giant Gaelic handball alleys during the Great Depression. So they just started building these one wall courts and you cut forward like a hundred years and you just have like two and a half thousand courts in New York. And it's amazing. They're free to use. They're free to access. They're just park courts. Um, And you see loads of young people, especially from the demographics that don't necessarily have like a really good start in life and don't have that much money, like they're using it and there's a whole culture around it and it's great. So like I say, all these, all, all countries hit balls against walls. But one wall handball is basically, you know, there's a giant rectangle on the wall and there's a giant rectangle on the floor. And all you have to do is hit the wall and make it land on the floor. Like it's the easiest one to do. Like it's hard to get good at it, but you can literally teach people in about 10 seconds how to play this and then they can start having a game. So I got into it because I played fives in the UK, which is a bit more like squash, but with a with a hard ball on a stone court. So it's a, a slightly different game. Um, but they ran trials because uh, one wall was making a push and it was becoming international and they needed an England team. I went to a trial, I got in and then I was like a super selfish athlete for a few years because I was like, I want to be the best in the world. And then uh, I realized that some of the Americans are really good. So I was like, I want to be the best in Europe. 
and um, managed to become the, the best in Europe because I was training with the Americans and it was awesome. But training with the Americans and then doing some of these tournaments around the world, like you begin to see what the sport actually is. And this goes hand in hand with when I was starting to do medicine and I was starting to understand social inequality in health and, you know, physical activity for health and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, hang on a second. When you live in a city and I live in London, right? So it's like New York, but a bit smaller. Um, but it's got the same thing. So green space is getting is disappearing every week. Gray space is going up every week. You know, buildings are going up. It's not going to change. So whereas, you know, we used to always use the green space, my thinking is use the gray space. And New York's been a nice model for that. So, um, well, well, 10 years ago now, 11 years, I set up the UK, well, what was called England Handball, but it's now called the UK Wallball Association, uh, with a view to creating a ton of these courts, especially for young people in the cities in the UK. Uh, and it's really begun to, you know, gather a lot of traction in recent years. We've basically been a charity for a couple of years without being being a legitimate charity. So now we're making that step. So imminently we'll be a charity, which will be much easier because, you know, I tell you, I've been on like um, uh, a few accelerators. I've done, I'm an NHS clinical entrepreneur, you know, and then I talk to so many people saying I do this amazing thing and I get, I get like poor people active and all they need is a wall and a ball, but I need money for my organization. Like, how do I get money in? And they're like, Mm, what's the return on investment for an investor? And you're like, there isn't much one. Like it's a social return. You know, I can brand balls and walls, but it's, this is a social thing. And they all say, oh, we can't help you. Um, so all these experts say, <laughs> if any of your listeners know ways to get money in for that kind of thing, let me know. But becoming a charity opens up a lot more avenues and there's grants and there's things like that. So it's definitely the right move. Um, so yeah, I think I still play. Um, I'm still like a really good doubles player. Singles, the newer players are—they're just too fast for me these days. But I'm, I'm dropping off the rankings slowly. But I'm still—I'm still kind of up there. But I'm also involved in the development of the sport, and that's what I really like. So, you know, uh, if you search for UK Wallball and the Guardian, by the time this podcast comes out, you'll see a bunch of news articles. You'll see stuff on TV. You'll see what we do, where we kind of replicate what happens in New York, but New York throw up these giant concrete grey slabs. My thinking is let's make it super colorful and enticing so people want to get on it. So the course that I'm putting up are really colorful. It's full of street art. Uh, it's designed by local residents. So it feels like part of the community and it becomes like a nice community space. And this is what I mean by stealth health earlier. You know, I will never tell people, apart from to people like you, that actually what's going underneath the surface here is medicine and keeping people healthy with physical activity. I won't ever say that. I'm going to say here's an amazing community space that's designed by the local artist and it's colourful, it's vibrant. You've got the places for mums, you've got places for lunch, you've got all of this and everyone kind of comes together. So, um, yeah, I love it. I spend, uh, you know, a lot of my time doing it. And to come to your other point, Alex, you know, I I think that you find that busy people are good at getting stuff done. So I've always juggled stuff. So I guess part of it is my personality Part of it is landing on my feet. So I, as a student, I obviously had time uh, and I was actually focusing more on the athlete side of it back then, but um, I had time. But when I started the job, the two years, like the two years of NHS foundation training, I found really, really hard because I was doing like a full-time job with a full-time job on the side. And it was very, very difficult. And things, you know, I got pretty stressed that those, those couple of years, but you know, I really enjoyed what I was doing. I, I fell on my feet because I wrote an article um, 
randomly about uh, how we treat um, patients like patients and not people. Like we just, they're just numbers to us or whatever. Like, you know, you do a ward round, you're like, this person has, like no one ever like treats them like human beings. And I, I think I spoke out at a conference about that. And uh, someone from the British Medical Journal came up who turned out she was the editor. And she was like, write that in an article. That's a really good thing you said. So I wrote it. And that thing went viral on thyroid forums for some reason. I guess thyroid patients really don't want to be called patients. They want to be called people because it's all individual. Um, And then there's a company called Medichex who do uh, biomarker testing. So you'll see this industry is taking off nicely, especially after COVID. It's biomarkers and it's it's empowered healthcare. So Medichex is is biomarker stuff, mainly blood tests. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where you order a test uh, it gets posted out to you. You can do a test. Sometimes it's a finger prick. Sometimes it's a venous draw. And then doctors like me will kind of com- uh, like uh, comment and write a report for you. Um, I think it's a really interesting sector. There are There is some snake oil out there. Like when you start getting into like genetic tests and like personalized vitamins and all this rubbish, like it's probably not great. But when you get into like the blood tests and the staple of clinical medicine, that's not scary biomarkers like cancer markers. It's literally like cholesterol, sugar, like you need to get a better diet and do more exercise, that kind of thing. Uh, I think it's really good and it's really empowered. And over COVID, you've seen that people want more control over their health. They want to feel, um, and we have the technology to do it. Like I'm preaching to the converted by talking to YouTube, but, you know, people want to take more control of their health. You know, we don't need to be so paternalistic anymore. Um, But that job has been really good and it has allowed me to basically make myself part-time um, you know, I'm not I'm not super interested in money. Like I want to earn enough money that I can have the life I want, but I don't need to earn loads and loads and loads. Money isn't my driving factor. I kind of realized that my I, I want to do stuff and get value out of my life. And partly I need to earn money to do that, but I can do that by working part time. So I do Medichecks and I do enough clinical medicine to stay valid. And then I take a few interesting medical jobs when they pop up. Like I was just a cruise ship doctor for a couple of months, which is really interesting. Um, but these things pay the bills. And basically that gives me half my time to then do everything else. I can do my movies. I can do wall ball. I can do everything. And I'm working flexibly because I'm working from home. So uh, I can work my hours that I want. And yeah, I might end up working late, but I spent the whole day out. I can wake up when I want. My alarm doesn't wake me up at like five in the morning to get in for a ward round. Like you wake up naturally, your life is better. Um, and then you're kind of like far more in control of what you do. Um, Alex, if you were asking me about what I can, what advice I can give, apart from advice I've given earlier of, you know, don't be scared, you can always come back to medicine. And also, like you said, medicine is an amazing degree. And I've been telling people this is basically like a master's, whatever. But the difference is, you know, so many medics can fall quite easily into consultancy. And why is that? Because A, they know you're smart. And also they know, which is really rare, uh, you can make a snap decision. And a lot of people don't know how to make snap decisions, but medics, it's actually, we're kind of trained to do it without ever being told we're being trained to do it. So you'll, you'll be able to make a decision like that. And that's really valuable in the business world. But, you know, every sector needs a doctor. Every organisation, well, not every organisation, but every sector needs a doctor. So there are tons of avenues for you. And then the last thing that I've done, Alex, I, I know a lot of medics. I'm not going to like this bit of advice, but I tell you it's pretty useful. Um, I, and this is very strange for me coming from, a, as, as a, from an athlete point of view, which goes totally against what I come from from an athlete side. But when it comes to work, 
um, and and when it comes to medicine and stuff like this, I say to people, I'm really happy. I will. I would rather have the silver medal in everything than the gold medal in one thing. And as soon as you kind of take a step back and you realize you don't need to be the best, you need to be good, and you need to be above average, but you don't need to be the best because actually, if you are above average in loads of different things, suddenly people are like dude, this guy is way more interesting than other people. This guy has more skill set than other people. And you haven't focused into something. You haven't become hyper-focused and tried to get a gold medal. And I know the medic mentality is everyone wants to be the best and everyone's going for these like distinctions and merits or whatever. But take a step back because if you do, you are off that kind of like cattle path. You're away from all those stressy, nervous people. You are literally your own person doing your own thing. And all the other opportunities present themselves. And you may not excel in that one field of like a nutritional gastro super specialist enterology or whatever, but you'll be a super interesting person because you're doing loads of other things. So uh, if you can make that change in your personality and persona, I feel like that, that was one of the big things for me that has allowed me to do all these other things. Dan, this is so interesting. And I think... I love the way you described getting off the treadmill. I think it's something that I haven't seen many people do. And I think it's something that's very scary to do. And I think we have one of the classes that I've done this semester at the business school called Authentic Leadership Development. And one of the goal of that class is, was to help people develop kind of the sense of a true north. What is your basically guiding purpose in life? And kind of trying to identify what is that is immensely important because so frequently we are being driven by the external incentives and kind of external competitive dynamics in our kind of micro community and macro community that we fail to recognize what's our individual kind of true north and we follow just the incentives of the system in which we kind of operate or work. So so I really appreciate your point there, Dan, and I think the other one, and I don't like this stealth approach to health, I think it reminds me of a book that I really like by Richard Thaler and Susan Sunstein. Uh, it's called Nudge. And basically it talks about kind of the importance of making these subtle changes that can drive the behavior of individuals and people towards healthier options. And I think like, I think a very interesting example of that is what you've mentioned with wall ball and one wall handball and now i realize it actually rhymes one wall handball (laughs) but essentially like there's also the idea of to reduce alcohol consumption you can like if you have like a row of drinks you can put non-alcoholic drinks on the first row and actually that provides like a very good alternative and guides like unconsciously the behavior of individuals to like pick that option rather than picking an alcoholic option. But no, this has been an amazing conversation and I really appreciate it. Shad and I are moving to New York where we will be working after business school. So now when we will see the wall ball courts, we will know what this is about and we have you to think about that. So thanks, Dan. Uh, you, I guys guess- are, you guys are going to give it a go, aren't you? You're going to be the next best players from New York. Oh, of course. 100%. I'll let you know. You should come to New York. We'll play together as well. <laughs> but that's awesome. And I guess to finish us off here, Dan, how can the audience learn more about what you do in terms of what channels should they follow? Yeah, no worries. I mean, I think that if you want to kind of follow 
what I'm doing as a passion, then jump on YouTube and search for Stealth Health. Um, you'll like it, Alex, because it rhymes. So Stealth Health, uh, and then you can see all my videos there. Just subscribe, subscribe to that. Um, you can also reach me on Instagram. So I'm the Stealth Doctor on Instagram, and I'm normally quite responsive, and that's me posting like more day-to-day stuff. Uh, but my focus is normally on the YouTube stuff. And if you want to be super official, you can go to my website, which is the stealthdoctor.com. And then you can send me an email and whatever, but you can also reach out to me on social media. It's fine. Um, but yeah, everyone should like, and subscribe to everything I've done on YouTube. That'd be lovely. (laughs) Awesome, Dan. No, I've looked at your YouTube and your website and I can vouch that it's, it's a very interesting and amazing resource. So I really recommend our audience to subscribe there and, and visit and check all the awesome content there. But Dan, this has been an amazing conversation. Really enjoyed having you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, looking forward to kind of keep engaging. And uh, I think our audience will really like this episode. Yeah, no worries. Well, guys, thanks for having me. It's been great. Shad, that was a fantastic conversation with Dan. I really enjoyed it. I think my takeaway here is that I think Dan mentioned something powerful the fact that it's not necessarily the right way to aim to get a gold medal in a single thing when you can get multiple silver medals in multiple things. And I think Dan here is referring to the idea that in certain aspects, being a generalist has its merits. And I think this is rooted in the point that there is tons of value that is being created on the intersection of different disciplines. And if you're only focused on one, it's really difficult to capture this value. Like this doesn't mean that being a generalist is always the right way or that being a specialist is always the right way. But I think it just helps elucidate the fact that, you know, it's a spectrum and sometimes kind of aiming to be the best in one discipline is good. And sometimes aiming to be a a generalist is equally good. Over to you, Shad. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate that point, Alex. I think for me, I appreciated many of Dan's points, but his point on active versus passive health really stuck with me. I think it's important as a society and as a community or as a physician group or whatever it is to lower the activation energy needed for people to get healthy because some people just won't be able to make the effort to do so. You can prompt individuals all you want. You can tell them to work out, eat healthier and you know, these are all great things. And people told me all these things. My mom told me all these things during residency, but, you know, I rarely, I rarely listened. Uh, But there's many reasons why people don't listen, right? Sometimes they just don't want to. Uh, I suspect that's a relatively small number of people. Oftentimes they don't have the time to, or too busy dealing with their lives. Uh, And many people just don't have the money to get healthy because uh, of where they live and maybe the presence of food deserts, for example, and, and they can't eat healthy. There is often person-specific factors, but it's too simplistic to think that that's the only factor or even the prevailing factor. You know, there's something called the, the fundamental attribution error where if we do something wrong, you know, we're very forgiving of ourselves because we realize that there are a lot of external factors at play that we just couldn't control and that like no one can control. But if someone else does something wrong, you know, we think that it's all their fault and we don't realize the different you know, things that are at play here uh, to, to, to reach that conclusion. Anyways, I think creating a system or environment where being healthy is easy or at least easier uh, is important. And that's something that we can all partake in uh, as community members or as members of uh, physician groups. 
But over to you, Alex. Thanks, Chad. That's a great point. And that concludes our episode for today. For the audience out there, join us for our next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at Physicians of the Beaten Path, visit our website at potbppodcast.com, or just drop me or Shad a message on social media. See you next time.